Would you stay standing? <laughs> and uh, I'm going to be reading Psalm 139, verses 1 through 18 out of the Christian Standard Bible. <clears throat> Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shield, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you, when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw when I was formless, all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast is their sum. I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, God. You can have a seat. Would you pray with me? So, Father, it's in Jesus' name that I ask that you would speak to us today from your word. Psalm chapter 12, verse 6 says, that the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So God, please give us ears to hear pure words, God, your pure words. Make the soil of our heart good soil to receive and respond to your pure words. And now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, last week, if you were here or if you were watching online, I mentioned that for last week and then for this week, I would be taking a page out of another pastor's playbook. And that is in regards to the topic of last week's sermon and then the topic of this week's sermon. So very quickly re recap. For over 15 years, when John Piper um, 
He's still alive, but he's retired from being a, a pastor. Uh, for almost the last 15 plus years of his time preaching weekly in a church, he, he would always preach a sermon on the Sunday before Martin Luther King Jr. Day on race or racism or racial reconciliation. And then he would generally follow up the next week with a message on the sanctity of life, specifically as it relates to the unborn. Last summer, a group of us were reading a book on race by Piper called Bloodlines, and I decided then that I would do the same here in 2021. And I mentioned that decision, I believe, was a conviction based on the Holy Spirit wanting me to do that. So here we are in 2021. Last week, Ephesians 2 and how the blood of Jesus, remember, from Ephesians 2, the blood of Jesus, the flesh, the cross, that's Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, 13 to 16, they have brought an end to the division that existed between Jew and Gentile. And now in the capital C church, God's people are to be made up, and they are made up, of people from every time, every tribe, every nation. And in fact, again, if you were here, we ended last week by looking at and then singing the song, Is He Worthy?, which part of that song comes from what I read to us. I want to read it again. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So God's people, God's children, Christians, are not first white or black or brown or American or European or Israeli or Filipino or Chinese or, right? No, God's people, God's children, Christians are first from every tribe and language and people because we are now kingdom and priests to our God because by Jesus' blood, he ransomed, he rescued us for God. Amazing. So I said it's a blood issue. It's a blood issue. And that's Piper, I confess. It's a blood issue, and I agree with him. This is biblical truth, and it must shape us and affect us and change us over and over and over again. And I joke, but I'll make the joke again. Even for us out here in California, we don't think we have these problems. And now this afternoon, we turn to the topic of life and specifically, the life of the unborn. From conception to the grave, all life is precious and important to God, and it must be to us as well. And as it relates to the preciousness of life after conception, but while still in the womb, the reason John Piper would preach a sermon, again, on this topic, the unborn, abortion, sanctity of life, Every year near Martin Luther King Jr. Day is because Martin Luther King Jr. Day, January 15, a week later, is the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion, January 22, 1973, seven months before I was born. One week apart. So Piper, under a conviction of the Lord, decided at least once a year, he would preach on these things. 
but here we are today. And I'm taking that page and we'll see where we go next week. But for this Sunday now, I'll finish this playbook, this play from the playbook. Last week, Grace, this week, what the Bible says about the unborn. Now, I don't think this is going to be the final word. I don't think last week was the final word on the topic, but I do hope and I've prayed that last week was a, what one of my mentors would call a sure word. And I hope and have prayed and believe that today, while it may not be the final word, it will be a sure word. And the only reason any of my words will be sure words is because they come from God, His word. Okay? So, this afternoon, two things, actually three. Number one, most importantly, what God says about the unborn. Okay, the biblical case. That's number one. Number two, how we can and how we must clarify and simplify the issue as it relates to the unborn and abortion. And then finally, number three, our God is in the business of forgiving and being gracious and offering grace, and therefore so are we. So those are three movements. So first, what God says about the unborn, the, the biblical case. The most important thing for those of us who are Christians is to listen to what God's word says about the unborn. The medical community has their statements and opinions. Of course, politicians have lots of opinions. But as Christians, right, people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and all of that, right, we must first say, what does God say? What does God say? Often, this particular discussion centers on the phrase, the sanctity of life. Simply, that just means the preciousness of life, the holiness of life. Again, like I already said, from conception all the way through life into the grave, there's sanctity to life. There's preciousness to life. But we don't have to turn any further than the first page of the Bible to see the sanctity and preciousness of life. And this is where we began last week as well. When we talk about issues of race and what God thinks, we have to start. And I said, Martin Luther King Jr., as a Christian, as a pastor, he believed in Genesis 1.27. God created man, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Because of that, every person deserves to be treated with respect. Humanity, men and women, are made in God's image. And as image bearers, we are all equal and precious before God. So human life, human life, hear this, human life, human beings, they are sacred and precious. But is that the case of the unborn? Are, are the unborn precious in this way? Or, or to put it differently, does the Bible consider the unborn to be human, to be a human life? A little bit later in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, we read of God speaking to Rebekah about the twins, Jacob and Esau, in her womb. My Bible reading plan, if you're doing the five-day reading plan with me, we just read through these, these verses not too long, not too many days ago. So this is fresh in my own memory here. But this is Genesis 25, 23, God speaking to Rebekah about the twins. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples are within that, that are within you shall be divided. And then verse 23, or it continues, excuse me. 
The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Two human lives that will be two nations. It doesn't say when they're born, there'll be two nations. It says in your womb, two nations. Jumping ahead for a moment to the New Testament. Listen to the language of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptizer. This is speaking of John while in Elizabeth's womb. Luke chapter 1, verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, so if you remember the story, we said Christmas a few weeks ago, right? We know the story well. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Mary's pregnant. Elizabeth's a little farther along. And it says that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, the baby, leaped in her womb. That's John. He leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with holy, the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to remember the word baby. Okay, that's the key word. A few verses later, verse 44. For behold, now she's speaking to Mary. When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And that's just like common sense how we all treat pregnant moms that tell you that they're going to have a baby and like the baby, the baby kid, the baby leap. It's a baby, right? We, we, we know that. We're aware of that. That word translated baby, pardon me, little you know, Greek lesson here for a second, but it's important. That, that word translated baby is, is the Greek word rephos. That's the transliteration, rephos. Now look and listen just to the next chapter in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, and then verse 16. Luke 2, 12. Speaking of uh, Jesus now and, and uh, the shepherds, the angel says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby. Same word, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Skip to verse 16. And they, the shepherds, went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. So in chapter 1, that word speaks of a baby in the womb. And now in chapter 2, that same word, Brephos, speaks of sweet baby Jesus, as Jenny sang beautifully a few weeks ago. By the way, Luke would later translate that same word, or I'm sorry, the ESV later translates the same word by Luke as infant. Luke chapter 18, verse 15, now Jesus is alive and he's doing his thing, and it says that they were bringing even infants to him. Brephos, same word. They were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw the person, they rebuked them, and Jesus rebuked them for that. And the point is simply put, in the divinely inspired, God-breathed pages of the Bible, God reveals that a child in the womb and a child singing and dancing around Jesus in worship are equally human beings and are image bearers. That's just how the Bible speaks of it. They are pre-human. They are humans. Now let's get back into the Old Testament in Psalm 139, which I read a few moments ago. This is a wonderful psalm. Um, some of you are in sports like, like me, you know, top 10 plays of the day. If you watch Sports Center or, you know, the top 10 Super Bowls, whatever, right? Okay, well, if there was a top 10 list of the Psalms, Psalm 139 would arguably be included. People love this psalm. I love this psalm. I many of you do as well. The key word in this psalm, and I wish we could, like, maybe put this top about an old and just spend two hours on Psalm 139. But I'm way too cold to do that tonight, so we'll stick with this. The key word of Psalm 139 is the word know. I invite you, read this again tonight at home, maybe tomorrow morning. 
God knows. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, verse 6, verse 23. And the faithful soul who David, who, who wrote Psalm 139, he, he's, again, the Psalms are poet, poetic songs, Hebrew songs. David says that the faithful soul also knows. Verse 14 says, my soul knows it very well. That is the key word of the psalm, though. Now, this psalm highlights the three theological omnis. We did some schmoozy Greek word a minute ago. Now we'll talk about the three omnis and do some schmoozing theologically. God's omniscience are in the first uh, six verses, his all-knowing. Then, then we have in the next section, God's omnipresence, right? He is all-present. He is everywhere. And then his omnipotence, his all-power as applied to his creating. So it's wonderful that way for those of us that like the systematizing of, of things. But I love this. Commentator Alex Moyer, he has a wonderful summary of, uh, of these verses. Listen to this. Certainly, he says, this psalm teaches the Lord's omniscience, his omnipresence, and his creatorship, and his holiness. But such abstractions are far from its heart. For to the psalmist, omniscience is God's complete knowledge of me. His omnipresence is God with me in every place. His creatorship is God's sovereign ownership of every part of me. I love that. It's not meant to be strictly systematized for the theological uh, nerd in the room. No, it's, it's meant to be to draw us into worship. I love that. Let me just read that last part again. God's complete knowledge of me. God is with me in every place. And God's sovereign ownership of every part of me are found in Psalm 139. Now look with me at verses 13 through 16. Verses 13 to 16 are, are really an illustration of the first two sections, 1 to 6 on God's omniscience, and then verses 7 to 12 on his omnipresence. And so David, there in verse 13, now as he's going to give an illustration, he begins with the word for. For. This section begins with that word for because it describes a dark place, specifically here, the womb. So I'm just going to read these. There's not a lot of commentary that needs to be made. Listen to verse 13. For, and now I'm reading from the ESV. Speaking of God and to God, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. In Job chapter 31, verse 15, let's see if my hands can get there. Job says something very similar. Job 31, 15. Job 31, Did not he who made me in the womb make him, and he's referring to his servants in context. And did not one fashion us in the womb? Job is asking rhetorically. That's how God revealed it. That's what God is doing. He formed 
David's inward parts, he formed our inward parts. He knitted us together in our mother's room. Verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I love how the Christian Standard Bible put that. Remarkably and wondrously. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. If you're a parent, you know this. If you're not a parent, you've seen a little child, and we've got plenty of little kids around today as well. How wondrously, wonderfully, and, and remarkably are babies and life and our bodies. And then as you get older, right, we start to complain. I do because I hurt and I'm cold and I ache and everything starts falling apart and all of that. But like, what an amazing thing. And this is why back in Genesis, God would create every day and say, it's good, it's good. And then after he makes man in his image, male and female, he made them. And he said, this is very good. Humanity. Wonderful are God's works. Our soul knows it. Our soul knows it very well. Verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Again, David writing poetically to speak of the secret dark place of the womb, like the depths of the earth. He wasn't literally thinking he was woven in a big ditch. Again, being poetic, speaking again of this dark, secret place, mother's womb. Verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Not only was God the one creating and making, but David says, actually, even before I was there, you knew me. You knew all my days, every one of them. So these verses in Psalm 139, Job, back there in Job 31, what I read, I'll read it again, did not he who made me in the womb make my servant, and did not one fashion us in the womb? So Psalm 139 and Job 31 emphasize that God is the, the maker, the creator, the nurturer, the, the knitter, all of it. John Piper says, why is that important? It's important because God is the only one who can create personhood. Mothers and fathers can contribute some impersonal egg and some impersonal sperm, but only God creates independent personhood. So when the scripture emphasizes that God is the main nurturer and shaper in the womb, it is stressing that what is happening in the womb is the unique work of God, namely the making of a person. From the biblical point of view, gestation is the unique work of God, fashioning personhood. So if we believe God, take God at his word, then we should join David in verses 17 and 18 and say, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. 
How vast? What must he be like? I think the Bible is clear about personhood, about the humanity of life in the womb. As this applies to abortion, which one definition I'll read here is the destruction of conceived human life. Abortion is the destruction of conceived human life. Let me read once more from Bible. The Bible treats the unborn the same way it treats babies that have been born. Right? We looked at that in Luke 1. And can we at least say with great confidence that what is happening in the womb is a unique person-forming work of God, and only God knows how deeply and mysteriously the creation of personhood is woven into the making of a body? Therefore, it is arbitrary and unwarranted to assume that at some point in the knitting together of this person, its destruction is not an assault on the prerogatives of God the Creator. Let me say that again positively. The destruction of conceived human life, whether embryonic, fetal, or viable, is an assault on the unique person-forming work of God. And I read that long paragraph because I say yes, amen. It is an assault on the unique person-forming work of God. So that's brief. As I said, I don't think it's the final word from God's word, but I believe it's a sure word. I believe the scriptures speak clearly that life in the womb is truly life, truly human life. So that's a brief look at what God says about the unborn, namely that they are remarkably and wondrously made and they are a conceived human life. Now, let's look briefly at how we can and often must clarify and simplify the issue. As Christians, again, I want us, more than anything, to take God at his word. What is alive inside the womb is human life, period. But so many other things muddy that up. Let's not let it be about choice, or privacy, or poverty, or bodily rights, or rape, or incest, or any other number of important things. Let's, let's clarify and simplify the issue. If what is in the womb is a human life, then the destruction of that life is out of bounds. Greg Coble, he's an apologist. He's someone who writes about how to defend your faith, how to argue without being argumentative, and so forth. He has a clarifying and, and, and sort of simplifying illustration. Let me, let me stick, get this out and stick with me. He, he says, imagine there's a boy in the backyard who calls to his dad, hey dad, can I kill this? What does the dad need to know before he can answer his son's question? Just one thing. What is it? If it's a cockroach, the dad will cheer his son on. By the way, I can think of it or any other number of things. If it's the neighbor's cat, it's another matter, hopefully, altogether. Silly and commonsensical, but the principle is this. Determining what is in the womb determines how we will treat what's in the womb. And again, biblically, as Christians, it's human life. So, those other topics that get brought in, 
they muddy it, and those things are important, but life, life that is in the world is human life. We have to clarify and simplify the issue. We come back to that over and over again. What is in the world? Again, as Christians, we hopefully take God in his word, but there are plenty of people who don't believe God and don't believe God's word. They're going to say, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care about David singing Psalm 139. I don't care about the twins in Rebecca's womb. Again, that's fine. When we talk to people, and maybe in our own wrestling, we have to kind of set the Bible side to it and just clarify the issue, simplify the issue. Uh, there's many, many wonderful um, things written out there. In fact, I didn't say it earlier, when this story gets published on the website tomorrow, we'll have uh, on the, that page several links and downloads you can get some of the things I mentioned, I mentioned and will mention. And one of those is a writer named Scott Pusendorf. Um, he, he's written a book called The Keys for Life. Um, it's, it's accessible to everyone. It's not like a deep, thick academic book. Uh, it's very accessible. But he's written and spoken extensively on this. Uh, and about life and abortion and all these things. And he came up with an acronym SLED. And it's a very easy way to remember how to clarify and simplify the issue. SLED, the S stands for size. How big you are doesn't determine who you are. Um, Shaquille O'Neal, he's a lot bigger of a man than I am. But that doesn't make me not a man. I don't make him more of a man. Size doesn't determine who you are. So that's the S, the L, level of development. How developed you are doesn't determine who you are, right? Infants, babies, mature adults, physiologically, right? Level of development it still doesn't determine who you are. Environment, that is, that's the E in SLED, that is where you are, doesn't determine who you are. It doesn't matter if you're sitting under a patio in 50-some degree cold weather like many of us tonight. It doesn't make us who we are. Our environment, right, doesn't affect our humanity. And D, the degree of dependency. How dependent you are on another or on technology doesn't determine who you are. Let's just go to the other end of the life cycle for a moment. Someone who's dying, who's in a bed, in a hospital, connected to tubes and things to stay alive, do they stop being human at that point because they are dependent on that? No. So a human that's very small in its mother's womb is still a human. A human that is very small in development still a human. A human in the mother's womb in this environment is still a human. And a human that's dependent upon mom and the bill cord feeding and everything else, this miraculously that happens, doesn't determine personhood. I have a printout of that argument by Scott Kusendorf that I'll put here, and again, we'll have them online and you can download that. But you can also read this book, it's good. It'll help you. In our own minds, own minds. Let's not let these other topics muddy life, human life. We have to clarify and simplify life, life. And God's word for us that believe it says life in the womb is human, life. We are remarkably and wondrously made. And we have to reckon, however, 
with numbers. I'm going to end with an object lesson. I don't do things like this often, but I saw this a couple of years ago, and it had a huge impact on me. When you come here behind this table, You know, object lessons, right? It's that whole idea that a picture is worth uh, is more than is worth a thousand words. How's it go? Picture is worth a thousand words. Is that it? Yeah. Yes. yes. So, some of you know where my office is on Fifth Street. I typically come in and I open the blinds so I can look out and watch people walking by and whatever. I see this guy, Chrisella, walk by a lot. And uh, so I'm sitting there on Monday this last week. And there's this like electrical box. And, and I can read the words. Someone wrote lukewarm. And I start staring. And whatever, I go back to my stuff. And then Tuesday, I convince, oh my mind, sit down. And I look out at this electrical box and it says lukewarm. And all of a sudden, I start panicking. Is, is someone trying to get my attention? Did they write that for me? Are they, are they accusing me of being lukewarm? God, I didn't think about that, you know, but it just was funny. Like, I'm just looking at it. With the way I turned the blinds, like I could read perfectly right through the, the two slats. Uh, it was funny, I think it was the next day, the city of Santa Rosa employee, I didn't call them, but they must have noticed, came and she cleaned it up and it ran on time and said, thank you, and I don't feel lukewarm anymore. But object lessons is my point. Like all of a sudden this, this electrical object with these words, boy, it just caused me to go, oh, wow, that's right, in Revelation, God spits out some of this people because they're lukewarm. They, that's, that's a digression. That's not my object lesson. Right? I give that first because I am going to give us an object lesson. And I, and I get that by its nature, it's meant to, to tug at the heart. It's meant to, to do something to us, okay? But sometimes we need a picture. Sometimes we need a picture. So we in our country, we honor Veterans on Veterans Day. And on Memorial Day, we remember the soldiers in our country that lost their lives. 1.2 million American soldiers have been killed in all wars. It's a lot of people. 1.2 million American soldiers. So I've got BBs here, and each BB represents a thousand lives. Twelve hundred BBs. One point two. It represents one point two American soldiers lost. In two thousand eighteen. Abortion was the leading cause of death in the world. The numbers of deaths from HIV, AIDS, smoking, alcohol, traffic accidents, malaria, cancer, were all lower than the number of deaths by abortion in 2018. 41.9 million. In the world, not the United States, in the world in 2018.
1.2 million American soldiers lost in all our wars. 41.9 abortions worldwide in 2018. And this isn't miscarriages that maybe get tagged as abortion. This is the destruction of life abortion. And I've got citation if anyone wants to read all that in another time. Numbers, 41 million, 1.6, that doesn't mean anything to me, really. But, but to look at containers of BBs all of a sudden, a visual paints a picture. And we can be numb to numbers if you're like me. We can just, like, in one ear out the other, doesn't mean anything. We, we need to reckon with numbers. And we need to, as Christians, say God's Word says human life is human life, regardless of where it is. And with other people that don't believe what God says, we need to say, let's, let's just deal with it. What is then? The womb. Let's not get sidetracked on other important but secondary things. What is life? And, and what is in the womb? And we need to simplify, clarify the issue. The third and final thing tonight, God's grace and God's mercy. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Maybe you have had a part in abortion one way or the other. Maybe you've had an abortion. Maybe you were part of helping someone get one or, or you encouraged someone to. My goal is not to condemn you. In fact, Romans 8, 1 says that in Christ, for Christians, there's no condemnation. There's forgiveness. First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 say, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation and the satisfaction for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. It's in Jesus we have forgiveness and restoration. So if you've had an abortion, if you've participated, there's forgiveness. And if you're a Christ Christian, there's no condemnation. I don't condemn you either. I simply want us to take God at his word and to clarify and simplify the issue in our mind. And let's not add to these numbers. Let's raise up a generation of kids that know that they are fearfully and wonderfully made and God made them in his image. And they are special. And, and they, they get older and it's help them and talk to them about life and how precious it is. And it's not just something that you can get rid of and it's just cells. No, it's life. And there's solutions. And many of us know beauty of things like adoption. Let's support ministries. You know, in our own city, there's bridges, crisis counseling ministry, wonderful ministry. We'll have a link to it if you aren't familiar with Bridges here in Santa Rosa. There's Sonoma County Pro-Life. Let's get involved. Let's pray. 
Let's pray. Let's not be cynical. And maybe that's a danger for you. I know it's for me. Even, I mean, all week I've been working on this. You can ask my family, like, what are you doing, Dad, with 42,000 BBs? Let's go to the one who can do immeasurably more than we can ask or think. And ask him to change the life. And it can begin with us. It can begin with the next generation. So, Father, now, this song ends, and I come to you now on our behalf, praying and reading Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So, yes, Lord, do that. God, help us not be complacent. Cause us to pray and value what your word says. All life is precious. From conception to, to death. May we treat all life the way your word spells it out in prayer.